the pink pixie dust falls out of the sky and you start convulsing and then you're just kind of all weird and you dress in a burlap bag and you sing kumbaya around a campfire every night. Holiness is being like our Savior, unique and set apart and distinct in every way. Isaiah proclaims, he says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. As Isaiah, he reminds us about God. Now, throughout these last few weeks, I've tried to mention different ways of explaining holiness. Maybe one of those ways would stick with you better than another. And this morning, there's another way that a man named J.C. Ryle defines holiness. And he says it like this. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind in the Scriptures. It is the habit of agreeing in in God's judgment, of hating what God hates, loving what God loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of His Word. That's a great definition of holiness. In other words, we're to be like God in thought and in action as we see Him revealed in His Word. The preserved Word that you guys have right now that you're reading off of your phone or you have in your hands. Now, Practically speaking, if we're honest, right, regarding God's Word and His holiness, it's pretty difficult. Pastor Legan Duncan once said this. He said, our code of ethics is not derived from everyone else. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember growing up, um, Dad would require, I remember he said this to me many, many times. He said, there's two things I expect out of my boys. I expect respect and honesty. Honesty and respect all the time. I wasn't always the perfect kid. I know that sort of shocks you. But if I was to cross the line, then something like this was said. Dad would say, you're a Vanderwalker, and we don't do that. There was a family identity. Maybe your parents said that. They used your last name. Hey, we're Eckleberries. We don't do that. You know? We're arts. And we don't do that. Maybe Poppy said that a lot to you, huh, growing up? You see, there was a family identity, right? And the same is true with the Christian family. In our, in His Word, in our study, God has laid out for us, out for Israel, what His family code looked like. Things where He would say, Israel, what are you doing? We are, God, you're a covenant members, and we don't do that. And that code was an expressed of, in a variety of ways as we've looked at through the sacrifices and these, these Ten Commandments and the, and, the, and the shadows of these things. But it can all be summed up, as the New Testament says, loving God and loving others with our whole heart. That was always the intent. And that's what God's family looks like. And that is still the code for us today. Holiness isn't something abstract or mystical. There are genuine and observable ways to see holiness. Now, we've been challenged with that, starting right at the beginning of chapter 18. We looked at 
really three or four of the beginning um, commandments where it challenged our relationship with God. If you remember, Israel bowed down to the golden calf. Now, we don't bow down to a golden calf, but there still are other things that we can bow down to. Other things that we give our hearts, our love to. We also were reminded that this love for God starts in the home. Men, it starts with us. Shepherding our wives and our children. And then we move to love for other people. What does that look like? Remember we talked about last week, it looks like thoughtfulness and generosity and honesty and decency. That's the family code. And as it was for Israel, this too is what it looks like for us today in our culture. And this morning we're going to continue to build on those things and be again confronted with what personal holiness looks like from the Word of God. Now, as I mentioned, it's not easy, is it? It's not comfortable to admit when we personally don't measure up And we don't act, as Ryle said, we don't act and think like Jesus acts and thinks how we read out of the Word. It's not comfortable to admit that. This uncomfortableness, though, for us, this being shaken up a little bit, this confrontation out of the Word of God into our lives is, for us believers, a good thing. It's good for us to be made uncomfortable. We need to be confronted by the Holy Spirit. And if we are, if men, if we're not shepherding well, three weeks ago, shepherding well our our wives and our children, then we need to confess that and repent. If we're not people who are being thoughtful and generous and honest and decent, then we need to confess and agree with God that we're wrong and then we need to repent. We need to, as chapter 19 starts out with and is teaching us throughout all of this, we need to be holy as He is holy. Six areas this morning where we are confronted with holiness, personal holiness. Six areas where we need to be holy because God is holy. First of all, we should be a forgiving people. A forgiving people. Notice with me, Verses 17 and verse 18. We left off last week at verse 16. Notice with me verse 17 and verse number 18. Verse 17 says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The main thought here is addressed right at the end of verse number 18. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And you know what this love in context is really talking about? This love looks like forgiveness. You know, in real life, there are times when we're going to get upset with each other. There are times when we're going to get upset with our spouses and our children or get upset with other our, our folks. We're just going to be upset. I'm not going to agree. There's going to be conflict. And you know what happens, or what can happen when there's conflict with another believer? As verse 17 correctly identifies, inward heart 
hatred. Now, it doesn't start out looking like that, typically. Because there's times when you can overlook a situation, but if you can't, as verse 17 states, then you're to, you're to discuss honestly with the other person the situation, the, the, uh, the problem, the issue. And if you don't deal frankly, as the text says, if you don't deal frankly with a problem, you will what? You'll come to bear a grudge. We would say you'd become bitter. So bitter that in your heart that you want to what? Exact vengeance upon them, as we read out of the text. My friends, this is not holiness. This is not what it looks like to be a family of God. The goal is love. And love looks like restoration, not bitterness. Not resentment or anger or vengeance. Rather, we are to love like God loves. How did God love us? John tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? To restore those who wronged Him. Church, if we do not forgive each other, if we do not repent of our bitterness, then we do not reflect God. We must forgive. As a believer... As hard as it may be, because we have new hearts, it's in us to desire and we should want to forgive. We would want restoration with each other. Here's how serious this is. God bluntly states in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Church, what a glorious thing for God to forgive the rebellious one who is you. And as we've experienced that forgiveness, that love, that restoration, so too should we be a people who forgive others who have wronged us. God seeks to restore those who have wronged Him. We too should be a people who seek to restore those who have wronged us. How's that going? Are you a people of forgiveness? Next we read in verse 19, but also in verse 27 through verse 28. Starting in verse 19 and then we'll skip to 27. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard, and you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or, or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Secondly, here what we learn is we learn to be a distinct people. Now, I group verse 19 and verse 27 and verse 28 together because they have the same dominant thought. Here, here's the context. Here's what's going on. Israel had just a few months earlier. Do you remember what had happened to them just a few months earlier? They had been delivered from 400 years of bondage in in Egypt. And all the influence of those pagan gods. They just kind of looked vanilla. They just kind of looked like everyone else. On top of that, they were just about to move into a land infiltrated with Canaanite culture. And so it's within this context, God says these things about cattle, about their crops, about their cuts, their haircuts, and about their clothing. 
Here, here's what God was doing. What he was saying is that Israel's distinction, I, I like the way Nick put this in, in a discussion we have, Israel's distinction marked them as God's people. Now, just like you know, uh, just like, um, well, i got to skip that. I had some pictures I wanted to show you. All right, the first picture was, let me see if you can guess. You remember, this? it doesn't happen anymore, but you remember, I remember when I was younger, and you could go, remember you could go into the airport and you could go all the way to the runway where the, you're, you, know, you would cry like a baby and say goodbye, and they would go down that little runway thing, and you were there, and you could put your, I remember as a kid, put my note, ah, there we are. Thank you, fellas. Who are those people? Harry Krishnas. You remember, though, I see those all the time. You don't see them anymore because of all the rules, typically. Not like you used to. Do you remember those folks? All right, now, next. Who are these people? Ah, false gospel people, right? All right, now, last but not least, everyone will get this one. Who are these people? Dejected Michigan fans. You can tell. Look at them. The girl's got her hand like this. That's just typical when they play football against us. They're just de- dejected Michigan fans. How, how did you know? They're just dejected. You know they're Michigan fans. As well, the col- colors there. Don't tell me you're a Michigan fan. No, they're <laughs> just like you knew who these people were, there was a simple way back then to identify an Israelite. An Egyptian or a Canaanite would see an Israel, Israelite and they would say, oh, or they think, oh, that, that's an Israelite. Notice the way he cuts or he doesn't cut his beard or his hair. Here's the point. The point is not that these things make them an Israelite, but they simply identify them as an Israelite. May I remind us again, in case our minds want to make an improper application, these identifications, these things that they did, the way that they, these things that they did, the way they dressed, whatever, they didn't secure them a place in God's family. Remember, before this law was given to them, God had promised a relationship or a place in His family, how? Through faith. Just like their father Abraham. This stuff wasn't given to Abraham like this. This came after. The point of this was simply identification. For instance, I wear my wedding ring my wife gave me because I want to identify that I'm married and married to her. It was her gift. She gave it to me. The ring doesn't make me married. It simply identifies me with her as married. And so God had Israel identify with him, not Egypt and not Canaan, not pagan cultures, not pagan gods. God was different. Remember Isaiah said, there is, he is God and there's none like him. Now, I want to be carefully explaining these verses a little bit further. Israel could obey these things. Not because it gained them a place in the family of God, as I said. They obeyed these things because of what God had done inside of them. Because of the love, out of love. And they obeyed, um, they, they obeyed God out of love because of all that he had done in their hearts. These things weren't in and of themselves holiness. They weren't, they weren't holy. You cut your beard a certain way. It wasn't, it wasn't holiness to do that or to, to, to be that. 
They weren't intrinsic characteristics of God, meaning God didn't shave his beard. God's a spirit. He doesn't do that. And neither were they fundamental things that Israel must do to be in God's family. That was never the intent. Matter of fact, over time, as they perverted this, Matthew 27 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead man's people's bones and unclean. It was always about what had happened in the heart that came out. It was always about that. It was never about gaining a place or being right with God. Now, unfortunately, the same thing has happened, hasn't it, within our Christian culture? Even in some of our modern churches today? Holiness became about the externals. I'm, a, I'm good and right with God, and my heart is filled with love with God because of what I wear. Bless Jesus, look at me. How I cut my hair. That I don't go to the movies. That I don't have a modern day tattoo, different from back then. Modern day. I, I wear a cross necklace. I vote conservative. I wear, I wear these Christian wristbands that everybody wears today. Man, I've got three of those. Woohoo! I'm good with God. Or I have a fish sticker on my car. These things do not mean that you have a new heart. That you've earned a new heart. You can't earn a new heart, I mean. Paul says in Galatians 3, Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the point. All along he's been trying to teach them that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It was all about Christ. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But now faith has come and we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. It was always about faith. He ties that right back to the beginning in verse number 6 where he says, Abraham believed. For in Christ Jesus, you're through faith. And then he says in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. As believers, it's about who we wear. It's about who we wear. Verse 27 says to put on Christ. We are to, quote unquote, wear Jesus. We're to be distinctly like Jesus, who is, as the Galatians, the letter in Galatians goes on to say, Jesus is love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness. There's no laws against those. We must be a people who identify with the distinct person and work of Jesus out of our hearts. And that looks like love and joy and peace. So secondly, we're to be a distinct people. Thirdly, this morning, we're to be a people of wisdom. We see this in verse 20 through verse 22. Verse 20. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, yet not ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But... He shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and that is a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be given for the sin that he has committed. Now, when we read this, right, 
It might seem, just reading down through this, uh, if you've read it on your own, hopefully before now, you read down, you look at verse 19, and it talks about these crops and the cattle and stuff, and don't mix them. And, you know, in other words, this stuff makes you, it's agricultural-based, and this is distinction. And then we're going to get to verse 23, and it's about agriculture again. But right in the middle of verse 20 through, uh, in the middle of verse 20 through 22, is this thing about this slave girl and this guy. It almost seems kind of weird and out of place. Matter of fact, uh, you, you can look at a, a whole bunch of different scholars, and mo- many of the scholars say something like this. It's not really obvious why this is grouped within these agricultural instructions. So, while we can't be dogmatic about this logical flow, one suggestion from a guy named Wenham who is, is really, I think, I think he makes the most sense, and so I'm going to go with that one. He says, within this agricultural context of verse 19 and then verse 23 to 25, most likely the original hearer and reader would have recognized this situation as a farmhand servant. This girl would have been some sort of servant, an indentured servant farmhand, because that was most of the culture back then. And so she worked with crops, etc. She was an indentured servant. So it's within this context that we're to be a people of wisdom. Now let me explain. We're not sure of the exact details of this example here, But in summary, we do know what it doesn't appear to be. First of all, it's not about adultery, a man and a woman who have committed adultery, or even a forced, violent intimacy. Or there would be, the prescription here would be, would not be take a ram off, you know, a guilt ram offering. The prescription would be what? Would be death. Because that was what called for adultery and for rape. It's probably not a pro- pro- prohibition either against intermarrying as this uh, in this case because we can't even be sure if she was a Canaanite. Elsewhere, we have seen and God said, look, when you go into this land, you may not marry Canaanites. But elsewhere, he did say, if you do marry a person of another culture, then it has to look like this. So he didn't forbid from marrying. I mean, look at Moses, right? Moses didn't marry within his own race. And that was fine. The point was, here, is that it it was one of these distinct people things. They were not allowed, and they could not marry a Canaanite. So we don't think that that was the case here either. But what we can see is that there was an improper, intimate relationship. What appears to have happened is that this couple was in love. And then they acted foolishly. They were guided by their desires and their feelings and not by truth. By what was right, they weren't guided by what by what was right, by what was by what is wisdom. My friends, this is not the way of God's family. What do we hear all the time? The world tells us that wisdom is being true to yourself, meaning that you should be guided by your feelings. If you follow your heart, you will serve your heart. And if you serve your heart, my friends, that's just going to make you a slave to your heart. And what does the Bible tell us about our heart? That it is desperately a wicked above all things. Who can know it? Now, if you're thinking through this, you say, well, I've come to faith in Christ and God's given me a new heart. And that's exactly right. But Romans 7 is still in the book. We struggle to do what's right. And when we want to do what's right, we don't. And when we, want to do, we don't want to do wrong, sometimes we find ourselves doing what's wrong. So we have this, this great war within us. And not only is that war within us, as we looked at last week, that there's a great war without it, outside of us. The principalities and powers, that's a, life is a war. But God knew what He was doing. 
and knew why he assigned the laws that he signed because they were based on wisdom of truth and not on feelings. Because feelings will just lead us to captivity. Feelings will just enslave us. Anybody who has ever been enslaved to their own heart understands what a roller coaster life this can be. You're up one day and you're down the next. Just ask the people around you if you follow your heart and are true, as they say, true, be true to yourself. No, this wisdom was based on truth. And this wisdom that we see here, that all of this really, and, it, and I, I bring it out specifically in verses 20 through verse 22, but all of these different things that God makes, all of these different uh, uh, rules, we would say, all these different standards were all expressions of wisdom. Why? Because they all pointed to Jesus. This wisdom was a beautiful shadow of the coming wisdom. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. One guy said in his commentary, the wisdom that beckons us in this passage is none other than Jesus Christ himself. You see, friends, the wisdom of God that we see here was a shadow of Jesus. And so may we be a people who are characterized by wisdom, because that is Jesus not by a people who fly by the seat of their pants. Fourth, here in this uh, text, we are to be a people of praise. We see that in verse 23 through verse 25, and then also verse number 30. People of praise. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, back to the agricultural context, you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you can eat it to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. And then we read down in verse number 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. As a response for God's graciousness in their lives, Israel was to give the first crops as an acknowledgement that God, that all good things come from God. It was an act of praise and an act of worship. And so it took probably about three years for these fruit trees to come to fruition. And when they did, they were to not give, take it themselves, but to give it to God, to give it to, uh, in, in this context, it's how they supported the work of God and how they, they gave out of a heart for God, out of love for God. This is their act of praise and worship for God's graciousness in their lives. We too should be a people who praise and worship God for all of the grace that He has given us in our lives. Ephesians 1 and verse 6 says that we should be a people to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Are you a people of praise? You know, it should be a, a natural and a wonderful thing for you, even in your office. Even out in public. Remember these, as Pastor Hunt in that video said earlier, these daily conversations? We should be a people of praise who say, ah, praise God for what He's done. Oh, is it that? Man, what a blessing that is. Isn't God good? This is what it looks like to be a family of God. Next, we should be a people of faith. Verse 26, verse 29, and verse 31. Each, again, each one of these verses has that dominant thought. Verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. We've talked about this already. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. 
Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or to necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. One guy said, you know, we humans have a natural aversion We have a natural aversion to uncertainty, don't we? We don't like it. What's going to happen? How is this going to work out? When is God going to do this? How is God going to provide for this? We do not like uncertainty. Israel was a nation that was wandering. And life did have uncertainty to it. At times it was so bad they would sell their own daughters to gain what they they would not trust God for. Likewise, we are pilgrims on this earth. A place that isn't our home, ruled by a king that is not our king, and filled with uncertainties about the future. As Israel, we too can become impatient and lose sight, not walk by faith, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. But may we be reminded of the good shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. We'll have no lacks, my friends. That word want means we're not going to be empty. We're not going to lack what God will and can provide for us. God's people are identified by their faith. They don't go to turn to other gods. They don't go to fortune tellers or necromancers or mediums. They don't turn to sinful life like selling their daughters to prostitutes. We're a people who trust God. Next, we see we're to be an honorable people, an honorable people. Verse 32 through verse 36. Last this morning, look with me at verse 32. You shall stand up before the you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall feel the, fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native. Excuse me. You shall treat the stranger with you um, as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment and measurements of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances just weights, a just epaph, a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of these things, literally. My friends, the family of God should be a family that identifies as honoring elderly people, honoring the elderly. The Egyptian and the Canaanite cultures forgot the elderly, threw them to the wayside as it were, found them because as they got older, they were not useful to build their great empire, their great pyramids of Egypt. So as they found them weaker, they therefore found them useless. We must be a people who show honor, demonstrating that all people deserve respect, especially those elderly saints who have gone before us. We have this problem as my generation of 40s and younger. We have a problem. We have this problem where we don't honor and respect the elderly. We might not agree with everything that our forefathers, we would say, or our grandparents did, just like they didn't agree with their grandparents. 
And those grandparents didn't agree with their grandparents. But nonetheless, we must give ourselves and be people who are given to respect. I say it this way. I remember growing up, one of the, one of the big things that I would say my grandfather's generation used to do. And they, they used to, I remember I was at Word of Life. And I was just, I mean, I was real, I don't, I have a bad memory. There's a few things I remember. This one I remember, and you'll see why in a minute. But I was at Word of Life camp, and I remember being in the, the big uh, meal, the mess hall. And this older guy was up there, and he was like getting us really pumped up for Jesus, you know, and stuff. And, and he said, um, look, um, if you score so many, if you say your Bible verses, and you do this, and you score so many points, I'm going to swallow a guppy. A fish, you know, a little guppy fish. And I was like, oh, that's so cool, you know. And, um, and so what we were all were motivated to do was say our Bible verses why, so we could see a guppy get swallowed. Well, guess what we did the rest of the day? Instead of going swimming, instead of going to play foosball or ping pong, whatever, we went to our back to our cabins and we studied our Bible verses. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but the motivation was horrific. And then I remember the guy swallowed the guppy, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, I'm getting sick. You know. I might not and will not have that type of gimmickry motivation, but I do know that my brother, that brother, whoever he was, had a heart, and out of that heart, he really wanted people to know the gospel, to know truth. And so that I do appreciate, although I don't know, appreciate the way that he went about it. You know, we can learn a lot from those that are older than us. We might not do things the same way, but they deserve our respect. And I believe that although their intentions, their, uh, their heart was right, it didn't express it the right way, they had a heart that loved Jesus. They were passionate about the gospel. They were passionate when they knocked on doors. They were passionate when they... You fill in the blank. How passionate are we? And yet we throw the older generation under the bus. Could you believe that they used to swallow guppies? Again, I wouldn't do it the same way. It's a wrong motivation. It's not right. But I do believe, and that's just one silly example, I do believe that there was a heart for Jesus. Not only that, but we must not mistreat foreigners. Rather, we should love them as we long for love in our own land. And finally, we must be honorable in our transactions, as the last verses teach us. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We don't really need to chase that out too much farther. You know, Bereans, holiness is real, and it's observable. These things aren't abstract things. They might look a little bit different. You know, we don't have the prohibitions to cut our, not cut our beard a certain way or hair a certain way, or dress a certain way. But as Ryle said, we can know the mind and the actions of God because He has, in His Word, has revealed them to us. You know, God says, just like our dads, our earthly dads say, say to us, God says to us, Jesus says to us, you're a Christian and we don't do that. With the dawn of the new covenant in Jesus... God's people were no longer to be known by their outward appearances, but by the inward spiritual transformation that bears tangible fruit. And this transformation results 
in works of worship. And that worship, my friend, is faith. It looks like faith and honor and praise and wisdom and distinction and forgiveness. That's what we should be look like. That's who we should put on. If your life doesn't reflect this, if your life is not holy, as God says your life should be, may you confess and start repenting of that, even right now this morning. Let's take the next few minutes and interact with this truth, if you would, right there in your seats, if you'll bow your head and you'll close your eyes. Deanna's going to come and she's going to play through uh, just one stanza of a song. And I'd just like for you to, to work, to recognize the Holy Spirit's work in your life and to interact with the truth this morning as she plays. Mm-hmm.